Well, really, it's been a great day of worship already, hasn't it? Amen. 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 We uh, are bringing uh, our series through the Ten Commandments uh, to a conclusion today uh, in the Tenth of Ten Commandments. And so I'm going to read for you out of Exodus chapter 20, uh, the first three verses, and then verse 17, which is the Tenth Commandment. So let's hear the word of the Lord together today. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then verse 17 says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, it's a blessing uh, to be with you and with your people. God, thank you for so many people that um, chip in to make corporate worship uh, not just possible, but a delight, a joy, a joy to be together, a joy to sing, a joy to have a, a gathered space, a place where we can come, we can sing joyfully, praising you for who you are. God, thank you for sending your son to save us, to rescue us, to give us new life. I pray that you'll bless this time in your word. May your word transform us and conform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. Dan and I were talking this week uh, about uh, a particular grandson he has that he's pretty proud of uh, that's having a good year on the baseball field and, uh, and how well Hillcrest is doing, and we're excited uh, for that. And uh, Dan and I were talking about, about baseball and texting about that, and, and I was talking about how much, we were talking about how much uh, baseball is a mental game. And that's really probably true of every sport, uh, but I just know baseball better than others. And uh, baseball is so mental. you got to have the fundamentals down. Like you need to know how to swing. You need to know how to throw, you know, those kind of things. But after that, it becomes, it becomes very mental. Uh, I could give you a very lengthy lesson on, on all the fundamentals around baseball. You know, I could teach you about fielding a ground ball and throwing mechanics. And, and I wasn't a pitcher, but I could still give you the mechanics of how to pitch a baseball. And, and I, I could talk you through situations and, and what each position does and each different thing going on. I could tell you all that, all the information. But when it comes time to actually be in the batter in the batter's box, when it comes time to be in the guy on the mound in the bottom of the last inning with, one, with bases loaded and one out and trying to get those last two outs, when it comes time to that moment, fundamentals are important. But the bigger battle is what's going on inside here, inside your own mind. I read another pastor, uh, John Ortberg, whose sport was tennis, and he even quotes a book called The Inner Game of Tennis. And he said, every game is composed of two parts. The outer game and the inner game. The outer game is played against an external opponent to overcome external obstacles to reach an external goal. To master the outer game, we must learn to swing the racket or the club or a bat. The outer game is what people see. It gets admired or disdained or ignored. But there's another more important game going on in the mind of the player. It's played against nervousness, doubt, and self-condemnation. Outside, the stats, the information, what is produced, that's what gets the attention. But what's going inside, going on inside an athlete, that's really where the battle is won or lost. That's where we decide, that's where it happens, it happens inside. That's true for athletics, and it's true for our walk in faith. We may see the outside results of so many things. We may see the, the external actions and different things that happen. But what's going on inside each of us the heart level, that's what's ultimately most important. We've been walking through the Ten Commandments, and as we come to this tenth one, there's something different about it, especially compared to ones that were just 
right before it. The, the sixth commandment is against murder. That's clearly wrong. Everybody agrees. And there's, there's you know, uh, official rules on our laws about the punishments when somebody's convicted of murder. Same thing, adultery, clearly wrong, ruins marriages and relationships and can even have uh, you know, legal ramifications in a, in a divorce case. There, the eighth command, steal, again, against our laws. There's rules that's punishable by the courts. You can prove it, whether or not somebody stole something or not. Lying, we talked about last week, in the wrong place, like in court, it could also end you up in jail. There are rules against these things. But then you come to the 10th commandment, and there's something different here. There's something different about this. You shall not covet. You shall not covet after murder and adultery and lying and stealing. Why, why covet? What's different about this? This one's different because it's not something outside. It has outside implications. People may do external things. If somebody covets somebody else's boat, they might go and steal it. But the sin itself, coveting, isn't outside. It's inside. It's internal. It's going on inside our lives. The 10th commandment is forbid, forbidding something that's going in our minds and our hearts. It's what we think about. The desires themselves can be wrong. And when you consider that, it might be a little bit terrifying. It might be a little bit terrifying to think about the fact that you can be sitting on your couch, feet propped up, and just scrolling through Instagram, Instagram and sinning. <laughs> because you're coveting what everybody else has got or everybody else is doing. Or about to, if you walked in the room and just saw somebody on their phone it, just doing innocent, you know, scrolling through, it doesn't look like they're committing a major, a major offense. It's surely not one of God's top ten. And yet here it is, one of the top ten we can commit with our feet propped up in our living room. That's pretty powerful. So maybe that's intimidating. Maybe it's scary to think about God that way, that He's judging you, that He's, he's got uh, a specific law, specific law against how you act, even in quiet moments when nothing else is going on. That might be scary to you. But if you consider it for a moment longer, I wonder if you can hear this, even this command, as good news. That this is, in fact, a gift to you. And here's why. It's good news that our God cares about not just what goes on outside you, but what goes on inside you. Our God cares not just about the things your hands do and, and the things you accomplish. He cares about your heart. He cares about your mind. He cares about the biggest battles we face. Yes, we all have mountains to climb and, and things to accomplish and things we do. But you know what the biggest battle we fight every day? It's right in between our ears, isn't it? That's the biggest battle we fight. And so it is good news that in the top 10 of God's commands, He's telling us He cares about what's going on inside your own mind and heart. He cares about that. When we think of God as an almighty judge, and He is by no doubt, He is an almighty judge. When we think of Him sometimes as this almighty judge who is just sitting there with His, with his notepad ready to catch us and everything we do wrong, then all these commands come across as, as just bitter and angry, right? But if we consider who He is, who He tells us who He is, he is our Heavenly Father. Before He was anything else, God has always been Father. He's always been the Father of God the Son. So He's always been Father, which means He's our Father for all who believe in Him. And as a caring, loving Father, He's telling us these commands as a way of showing you that He loves you. He loves you and He wants what's best for you. He doesn't want you to be living your life in the, the, the weight and the, the, the incredibly burdensome weight of coveting. Coveting, living, always desiring what somebody else has. You know what that is? That's miserable. That is absolutely miserable. And so it is a gift from God that He would care enough about you 
And not just the things your hands do, not just your external actions, but he would care about what's going on in your heart. So much so that he would call you out of coveting. Like all the Ten Commandments, the Tenth Command is really a gift of grace. It's a gift of grace. It's a gift that he says, I care about you, and I don't want you just to be robots who are programmed a certain way. I don't want you just to be slaves who begrudgingly keep certain rules and certain, do certain things. He, we are his children, and he cares about us. We've come to, to appreciate these Ten Commands because, yes, they are laws, but they're also gifts of grace, the grace and the law. God didn't give us this list of rules to his people and say, keep these, and now after you keep them, if you keep them, I will love you. No, these, have all, these were all given to a group of people who God has already proven his love for them. If you're here at the very beginning of our, the Ten Commandments, when we first looked at these commands, we remember that the way they start, and the reason why I read or have somebody read the first part of the Ten Commandments after, before uh, all of these commands, is they don't start with a command. They start with a glorious truth about God's salvation. It starts with, I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of Egypt. The Ten Commandments don't start with, you better get your act together and then I'll come and save you. God didn't look at the Israelites lost in Egypt for 400 years and say, hey, if y'all start acting right, I will bring you out of Egypt. If you do all these things, I will save you. No, completely the opposite. He saved them. They did nothing to earn his salvation. He rescued them dramatically, miraculously, 10 plagues crossing the Red Sea on dry land. And then he gave them the commands. All the other worldviews say, if you do good things, you will get good things. Christianity says God has already done the best thing. And because he has already acted, because he has brought you into relationship, because he loves you, our obedience flows out of that love. We do not obey the commands in order to be saved. We have been saved. And so now by a change of heart, God has transformed us. And now we want to obey the commands. This could not be more different than the way the world works. And yet so often, even the church, we get this backwards. Even the 10th command, I want you to hear this is grace. This is a gift. This is an opportunity to know and follow God. Not in order to earn something, but because Christ has already accomplished it. You can walk with him. The Ten Commands are meant for us to be a gift, especially as we celebrate this week and all this is. Let us not confuse the commands for something they're not. They are a gift. This week, today is Palm Sunday, the day we recognize that Christ is King. They shouted, Hosanna, save us, as Jesus came into the kingdom, into the, to the city that He already owned. He already owned Jerusalem. He already owned all the world because He created it. They recognized Him as King. We knew, all the people knew, we needed a Savior. And this is exactly what he came to do in a very different way than they expected. But he died on Friday and resurrected on Sunday. We celebrate that this week and we, we enact it. We display it today in baptism, recognizing what Christ has done in the lives of these people as they are baptized. And as we do that, we recognize this is a gift. This is an opportunity. This is a blessing. Salvation is a gift. And our obedience follows that salvation. It doesn't come before. God loves us not because of something we did. He loves us because of his own free choice. He's given us a chance to follow him. Praise God that he cares enough about us to want what's best for us. He wants what's best for us. He cares how we live, which is why he aims at our hearts and tells us, you shall not covet. This isn't good for you. You shall not covet. For many of these commands, it's been helpful for us to notice 
the thing that's commanded against and the positive kind of flip side of what, what God intends for us. And I think that's helpful again here as we consider coveting. What is the opposite of coveting? The opposite of coveting is being content. The opposite of coveting is contentment. Somebody who doesn't covet somebody else's stuff is somebody who is content, right? If we live our lives constantly seeking other people's things, other people's things, other people's jobs or relationships, whatever else, we are not content. We're not satisfied. We're living our whole lives always looking for one more thing. And the opposite of that is contentment. I don't know about you, but just hearing that word content, it sounds nice, doesn't it? It sounds nice. I don't know what it would feel like, but it sounds like it would feel really good, doesn't it? Just the, uh, this idea of you're at peace. You're at rest. Things are okay, and you're, you're not striving. You're not, you're not trying to get something else done. You're, you're just, you're okay. It's, 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 all, it's all okay. We long for that. We long for that, don't we? Coveting is miserable. Desiring, constantly living, seeking after the next thing and one step up and one step up the ladder and one more this and one more that. It's, it's a burden. That's, that's terrible. And yet we so often live right there. What I want to paint for you today is what it looks like for us to move out of a lifestyle, out of a habit, out of a heart that's driven by coveting and into a life of contentment. What would it look like for us to no longer be people who are bound up by keeping up with the Joneses about one more thing and growing one more whatever instead have a life of contentment? So today's sermon is going to be five ways to get rich quick and buy all the stuff you really want so that you'll no longer be coveting. I'm glad you guys got that before I even finished that sentence. Of course not. Of course that's not going to be the point of today because you know what? Even if, I don't even know how to do that anyway, but it wouldn't work, would it? It wouldn't work. I hear from people who are rich, or at least I read about them, that you know what happens when they get all the stuff? It didn't satisfy them. It's not, it doesn't bring contentment. We live our lives thinking one more thing and then I'll be happy. And we get the one more thing and there's always one more thing. There's always one more thing. If we're going to move out of coveting and into a heart of commitment, it's going to take something more than just making a little more money. Accomplishing one more thing. Stock market going our way. Housing market coming down. Or going up if you're selling, whatever way you want that. We, we need more than that. We need more than that. The other, part, the other way we, would, we, could miss, we could confuse this is that, because the word here in the, in the 10th command and, and throughout the different places in the Bible is just the word for desire. Just the word for desire, which by itself is a neutral word. Desire in and of itself is not a negative thing. But when we desire the wrong things or in the wrong way, that is what coveting is. Desire itself isn't bad. Desire can be a very good thing. God gave us good and healthy desires. Desires for food and adrenaline, adventure, sex, sleep. He gives us all kinds of good and healthy desires within His creation, within His order of creation. Desire isn't bad, but when it becomes bad is when it goes out of bounds. When it goes out of bounds. Our goal as Christians is not to just eliminate all desires of our hearts. That's impossible anyway, right? But that, that isn't what Christianity... Christianity is not teaching just have no desires. You know what that is? That's Buddhism. Buddhism teaches this, this kind of meditative, empty-mindedness that you reach this state of nirvana or something like that, and, and you become at peace because you don't have any more desires. I don't know how they do that anyway, but that's not the goal of Christianity. Our goal isn't to, to have no desires. Our goal is something far greater, far more beautiful, far more enjoyable, far more delightful. It's having right desires, aimed at the right things in the right ways. 
If we're going to move out of coveting and into contentment, we're not just trying to make more money. We're not just trying to eliminate desires. It's about having our desires rightly ordered, rightly directed, and in the right way. Coveting specifically, in, in a narrow sense, is about desiring something somebody else has. I don't have it. You have it. I want it. That's coveting, right? But it could, it could be more than that, too, because I don't actually know somebody with a 2022 Tacoma. Maybe one of you has one. But I can still covet it, even if I don't actually know somebody who has one. So there's, there's more to it than just specifically looking at somebody, though that's definitely the, the first thing mentioned here. John Piper gives a very helpful definition. I think gets to a, a deeper root of what coveting is. He said, coveting is desiring something so much that you lose contentment in God. There it is, isn't it? Coveting, there's, there's the line you cross. A desire may be a good desire. It's, it's okay, you get good things, whatever else. But do you, when you move from, I need this or I won't be content in God, that's coveting. That's the line you cross. Coveting is desiring something so much that you lose contentment in God. When it becomes coveting, as most of the time it, all our desires, that, that's kind of the natural progression. It's when they say, I, 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 I can't be happy. I can't truly be satisfied. I can't rest. I can't be at peace until this happens. That is coveting. So many people's favorite verse is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But if we read that verse, it's not primarily about being the quarterback in the two-minute drill to win the Super Bowl and you throw the touchdown pass, right? It's not primarily what he's aimed at there. You know what he's aimed at in Philippians 4? Contentment. Contentment. Two verses before it, Philippians 4, 11. Not that I speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Whatever situation? Like any circumstance, Paul? Really? Do you mean, do you mean in, I mean, surely you meant just like most hard things. No, he says, whatever situation I'm to be content. He keeps going, verse 12. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. And in any every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Whoa, 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 Paul. Hold on. Before we wish to stop you right there, Paul. I could see how you would be content in abundance. I could see how you'd, you'd have contentment and satisfaction in having plenty. But do you really mean hunger? I mean, that's a, that's a pretty low rung. That's a pretty low bar. That's a basic human need. And he's saying, even in hunger, even when that need, hunger's not a want. Food's not a want. You, today, food, luxury is food. But being hungry, that's a need that's not being met. And he says, even in hunger, I can be content. That's when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen. You want to find contentment? You want to find joy? You want to find satisfaction? It's not by chasing plenty. It's not by chasing abundance. It's not by only being hungry either. It's in Christ. In Christ and in Christ alone. That is where we find contentment. So let me ask you, is that true today for you? Is that your source? Is God and God alone your source of satisfaction? Is He the one that gives you contentment, peace, joy right now? Or do you need something else? Is there always one more thing? Always one more thing that you're seeking to truly have contentment? What are some of the areas? What are some of the ways you, you may be tempted? What's, what's the, the category that may trip you up and you say, I'm okay on this side, but over here, yeah, I'm always seeking one more thing. Maybe the most common is money and possessions. We always need more stuff, or so we think. 
We always want one more thing. I'll be content when I reach this financial goal, when my job pays me this much, when, I, when, when my husband gets a, a better job and I can stay home with the kids. When I get to this line, here's the line, and then I'll be content. And until we reach that financial point, retirement's funded, boat's paid for, second house is bought, whatever it is, we think that's the line, and until I get there, I won't be content. Ecclesiastes 5.10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Luke 12, 15, Jesus warns somebody, warns a man asking him questions about the law. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. You put all your stuff together, not going to satisfy you. It will not satisfy you. Maybe you're okay on money. You're, you don't care about money. That's not your thing, but a relationship. You've got a relationship in your life or one that's missing in your life. And you said, I, I'm fine on money. Take it or leave it. But if I can't get this relationship, I will not be content. Maybe for the single person, it's, it's marriage. I, I'm fine. I'll seek God, but I need God and I got to be married. Or I got to have kids. Or my marriage needs to look like their marriage. Or my husband needs to look like that husband. Right? Or, or whatever, this relationship, I need this relationship to be better. The desire is not wrong. It's a good thing to desire holy things from God. But when we need it to be content in God, when we need this, I, I can't be satisfied until you accomplish this, God. That's where it crosses the line to coveting. I'm no longer content. We can pray for good things. We can pray for our kids. We can pray for marriages. We should absolutely do all those things. And still while hungry, while begging for God to change this thing, we are still content in Christ. Maybe it's a season or a circumstance. You say, hey, as soon as we get past this day, then I'll be content. Maybe the most common is just, I can't wait for it to be Friday. I'll be, I'll be content once it's the weekend. I can't do it in the middle of the week, but you know, Thursday, I need Thursday to leave, and I need Friday to be here, then I'll be content. Or more broadly, maybe you're looking, looking further down the road. I, I read Kevin DeYoung cautions uh, when, he, when he's doing premarital counseling, he warns people, and our premarital counselor said something similar, warns people about thinking in seasons. You, you're, you're engaged and you're just so anxious for the wedding to be here that you, you're not content right now waiting. Or you get to the day before the wedding, I can't wait for the honeymoon. Or I can't wait for, I can't wait for, the, you know, for us to have kids. It's good to desire them, but if we're living so anxious for it, so much looking forward to the next thing, there's always going to be another thing. The kids, I want kids. I want the kids to get out of here and leave home, you know? <laughs> I can't wait for retirement. I can't wait for the chance to travel. I can't wait for, and we just, it just keeps pushing it further and further down the line. There's always one more thing. If we're living, waiting for a circumstance to change, waiting for the stock market, waiting for a house, waiting for some, some season to pass, we can pray for it. We can know that this is a hard thing, and we can still in Christ find contentment today, now not just waiting for the thing to pass. Maybe for you, it's, it's, it's people's abilities, giftedness, people around you who just seem to have more, more, more talent than you. Maybe, maybe you're looking at them, there's, there's always somebody a little smarter, there's always somebody a little faster, a little stronger, there's a salesman making more sales, there's, there's somebody who's got a, a better online presence than you, they get more likes on something when they post it than you do. There's always somebody around you doing something better. And that their actions, the things they accomplish with their hands or their, their ability to stand and speak or their ability to do something. And you're like, I, 
I just got to be like that person. Then I'll be content. It's coveting. We've lost our contentment in Christ. You know, all those categories have in common, whether it's money or relationships or seasons of life or giftedness, they all come into play when we play a really bad game that we all play. It's the comparison game. You know that game? You, you stack yourself up next to somebody else and you compare. And you know what happens in that game? Nobody wins. Nobody actually wins that game. Sometimes we stack ourselves up next to somebody and you say, man, they're just better than me than this. And we just feel depleted and defeated. And they're filled with pride, right? We, we stack ourselves up and we say, I, I, until I'm more like that person, I won't be content. Nobody wins the comparison game. Someone covets, the other one filled with pride. And we're all tempted to think, until I'm that person, I, I can't be content. Sometimes we are tempted when we look at the rich and the famous, right? We see them on TV. But I think that the, the area that we're more tempted to covet is somebody who's just like one step ahead of us. It's a peer. It's somebody who lives down the road or across the street or just a, uh, works at the other, the other side of the office. Somebody who's just one step ahead and we're thinking, I, I could be there. The rich and famous, ah, we, that's so far out of reach. We don't think about it. But, but somebody who's, who's right there, man, I, I, I can speak better than them. How come they got that? You know? How come they got that? I get, you get with a group of pastors, well, you know, insider information, and you're like, that guy has that big of a church? And you think, what? It's coveting. It's coveting. It's unholy. It's playing the comparison game. It's not right and not good. And it's hurtful to our heart. A, jo- uh, a novelist, Joseph Heller, said, There is no disappointment so numbing as someone no better than you who achieves more. That's painful. You remember what we said about commandments 6 through 10? These commands, the second half of the commands, are all about loving your neighbor. You know, you know one way to not love your neighbor? Covet their stuff. Covet their stuff. If you're always desiring to have their thing or take their thing, you can't love them. You can't love them. You can't be grateful for them. When, when your neighbor, your coworker succeeds, when, you're, when he gets a promotion and you don't, when they get a, a new car, when, when something happens to somebody around you that's good, that you don't have, can you genuinely, out of love, appreciate that, that step that they were able to make? Or do you find yourself just coveting? If you're living in coveting, you can't love. You can't love them. You're just thinking about yourself. You can sh- this shows up in all kinds of different ways when we're stuck in this coveting cycle. Sometimes it's just being irritable, complaining, grumbling. I read one dad who said, I try to explain to my boys, covetousness is wanting so, something so much it makes you fussy. <laughs> You're just fussy about it. You're fussy about it. Sometimes we get upset. And it, it, the way we're, 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 anxious, we're um, coveting something, it leads to anxiety. We're stressed until we get to that thing. We get preoccupied. It dominates our thoughts. Our mind wanders there more often than when, we're, when we just have an idle moment. We're daydreaming. We're daydreaming about this thing. It shows up in our words to our neighbors. When we ask questions about their house and their, their stuff or their family, their job, whatever, and really all we're thinking about is just how can I get that thing, you know? That's what's going on so many times in our hearts and our minds, all different areas when we're coveting. And the opposite of that is contentment. The opposite of that is contentment. The Bible condemns coveting. And praise God he does that because coveting is miserable. It's destructive and it hurts hurtful. But instead of coveting, the Bible offers us a, a, a better suggestion. And that's the suggestion, the opportunity of contentment. One of the verses I've, I've most savored this week is 1 Timothy 6, 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness 
with contentment is great gain. Do you want, you want to really gain something? And here's how the Bible, the Bible speaks. It doesn't speak, don't have, don't have a desire for gain. No, no, this is a much better gain. Contentment. That's a much better gain. Gaining the peace, gaining the assurance of, of our place in the world, gaining some, some ways to relax. That is a great gain. Get godliness, get contentment, pursue holiness, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and trust that God, who's the God over all the universe, will meet every other need that you have. Godliness with contentment is great gain. If you, if you claim to be a Christian, you probably never say things like, I don't need God, right? Yeah, we, we, we kind of have a sense of, I, you know, I'm not going to say that. But what we might say is, I need God and. I need God and fill in the blank with the thing that you think would make you happy. You know what the Bible calls that? The Bible calls that idolatry. Idolatry. Idolatry is trusting in a created thing rather than the creator. We need this thing, job, money, house, relationship, kids, kids to go. We, we need that thing in order to be happy, in order to be satisfied. You're asking that thing, that person, that opportunity to be your God because God and God alone can satisfy. If you finish the sentence with, I, in order to be happy, I need God, but then you add an and, you're committing idolatry. I need God and. That becomes idolatry. The New Testament pieces that together for us multiple times. Colossians 3.5 is one of them. Uh, this is Paul writing. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. When we covet something, we're saying, I need that thing to be satisfied. And that is a form of idolatry. God and God and, we're putting something in His place. Do you remember what the very first command is? You shall have no other gods before me. First command, tenth command, similar. Not exactly the same, but similar. And they're bookends to tell us just how important and how awesome and how glorious God is. Our gracious Heavenly Father says, don't put anybody in my place because I'm the only one who can satisfy you. Don't worship. Don't bow down. Don't misuse His name. Worship and worship God alone. That's what's best for you. And when you look at all your friends, all your neighbors, all their stuff, and you're tempted to covet, don't do it. Because all that stuff will not satisfy you. It will not bring you joy, not everlasting joy. You need God and God alone to be content. First command, tenth command, bookends to the Ten Commandments to tell us that God is the source of our satisfaction. He's the source of our joy. You know how we move out of coveting into contentment? You know how we make that, that path? It's not by just getting rich fast or emptying ourselves of desire. It's not by racing to the top. It's, none, none of that's going to work. The only way to get from coveting to contentment is by faith. By faith. The fuel for contentment is faith. Trust in God and God alone. The source and the ongoing supply of our contentment is believing God really is who He says He is and does what He says He does. When we look at the stuff in the world and we think it'll satisfy us, what we, what's actually going on in us is I don't believe God can satisfy me. God has said He would. God has said He's enough and I don't believe Him. And I need this thing. This will satisfy me. This job, this relationship, this amount of money. That will bring joy. That's doubt. That, that's a lack of faith. It's un having a lack of trust in God for who He is. Exodus 22, 20, verse 2, the start of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
We have to believe in God for who He is if we're going to move to a place of contentment in our lives. And you can do that a number of ways. Think about what God has done for you in the past. Think about where God has brought you just in your lifetime. How has God been at work in your life? And if you don't yet know Him, then come to the Bible. Even if you do know Him, come to the Bible and look at what the Bible tells us God has done for us. The people here in Exodus chapter 20, they've only got a book and 19 chapters worth of history, and yet they have so much testimony about what God has done for them, how He has brought them out of Egypt, brought them out of slavery, freed them to live and to worship. What an incredible joy to celebrate what God has done for them. You know, we have, we have another 64, 65 and a half books of testimony of God's faithfulness to us. God has done so much for us in the past. And He has promised to meet all our needs in the future. He has promised to be there for us, to never leave us or forsake us. Do you trust in God or do you doubt Him? Do you trust that He's really good? Do we doubt that He, he actually knows what's best for me? God, I, I know you say you're going to take care of me, but what I need to be happy is fill in the blank. You know what we've said? We've said, I'm God, you're not. I got this, God. I know what's best. This will make me happy. You know what? For, for many of us, you, you are good people. You're holy people. You know what the things y'all want? You want good things. You want your kids to know the Lord. You, you want your kids to be taken care of. You want, you want the wayward to come home. You want, you want holy and righteous things. You know what I think the hardest place of contentment is? Is when you're praying for a godly, holy thing to happen. And it hasn't happened yet. That, I think, is the real test. I've thought this week a lot about, you know, okay, don't chase after the Lamborghini. Don't chase after his status. Don't chase after the promotion. But what if, what if you're chasing after your coworker, who's been, been running from the Lord for all these years and you're, you're begging God, you're begging God that they would come to know Jesus? Could there any be any more holy desire for somebody to come to know the Lord? Maybe it's not a coworker. Maybe it's a, a, a friend, a neighbor, a child. And you're begging God, God, I need this. I want this. That's about the hardest place I know of to test can you trust God and be content even if he says no to that kind of request? That's a hard one. It's a very hard one. And I come back again, I, the Krugers, Michael and Melissa Kruger, I heard them talk about this one time, that if you put the whole screen, that whole screen was white, and you said, that's everything God knows, and then you, you walked up there with a Sharpie and just barely touched the, the screen, that one little black dot, that's what I know. <laughs> and here's everything God knows. And to God, with, with my one little dot of knowledge, this is what I'm asking for. It's a holy thing by your word. I'm asking for it, but I'm trusting you know a whole lot of things I don't know. There's, I think, the real rub on, on contentment. Can we be content even when it's holy things we're asking for? There's where our faith is tested. There's where our faith is really tested. How we respond to the Ten Commandments, all Ten Commandments, is really a response of faith. It's not just the Tenth Commandment that's fueled by faith. All of the commandments are only fueled genuinely and truly by faith. So I'll, I'll conclude with the, the all ten commandments with this one verse out of 1 Timothy 6.12, which says, fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. We read uh, John 15 a lot here. I am the vine, Jesus says, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you and I go through this life not spending time with God, it's really hard to trust Him. Two different times this week I had conversations with people who, who I, were going through hard things, and, they, and I, I asked about, how, how did you trust God through this? 
I was in the Word. I was spending time with Him. I, I know Him. It's a lot easier to trust God when you're spending time with Him. It's a lot easier to covet when you're not. It's a lot easier to lie. It's a lot easier to steal. It's a lot easier to be unfaithful in your relationships if you're not spending time with God. Fighting the fight of faith is walking in a relationship with Him. He saved me, and I want to walk with Him. The other huge step, I think, for obeying the 10th command and all the commands is a step of gratitude. A step of gratitude. Psalm 6930, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify Him with thanksgiving. If you see that your heart is filled with coveting and you want to get to contentment, walk the path of faith known as gratitude. To look at what God has done for you. I, this week, I, was, I always do this. I always try to make a, a list. Of, Here, how am I going to apply this message? And so I started listing the areas where I'm tempted to covet. And you know what? Pretty quickly I realized I have a much bigger category of things to be grateful for. I have a much bigger category. Philippians, uh, or, or where we read in, in um, 1 Timothy 6, he says, if I have food and clothing, with this I will be content. That, that hit me between the eyes this week. You know why? I got a lot more than food and clothing. <laughs> if that was the bar for being content, I jumped way over that. Like I got more than one shirt. His bar is just, I, I just need one thing. You know what? Paul's bar was actually lower than that. We already read it, Philippians 4. He said, I know how to be content even when I'm hungry. Even when I'm hungry. To fight the fight of faith, to say, I'm going to trust God in good, bad, or otherwise. Because He is good. He is supreme. And I know Him. I'm spending time with Him. And that is enough. That is enough. Contentment is a place of saying, I know God is enough. And when we don't believe that, we're always striving for the next thing. We've always got one more thing to do. You want to hear the good news of the gospel? The good news of the gospel is that it's finished. It's finished. When Jesus was up on the cross that first Good Friday, and it truly was a Good Friday, a horrific Friday, but it was a Good Friday, Jesus looked around, the crowd around him, he prayed for their forgiveness, and then he said, it is finished. It is done. We live our lives coveting one more thing to accomplish. I'll be happy when, when I get this one more thing, when I accomplish this, when this happens. But Jesus on the cross, once and for all, said, no, you don't have to do that one more thing. It is finished. It is finished. The Ten Commandments are given to us not in order to achieve God's love for us, but as a way for us who can look to Christ who said it's finished and say, I see what He's done. It was enough. I can rest in Him and I can walk with Him by faith. My encouragement to you as, you as you read through the Ten Commandments, as you study these, as you memorize them like our kids did, that you would use this as an opportunity, that you, God would be working in your life. You could say, I, I want to follow Jesus, not in order to to be something. I already am. It's finished. I'm his child. He's brought me in his family. I believe in him. And because of that, it's done. And I can walk with him. Today we're going to celebrate baptism here in just a moment. And what we're doing with that is we are celebrating that God has brought people into his family. That he has made them his child, his son or his daughter. Because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, they've been set free. Maybe you're here today as family, friends, you're supportive, and maybe you don't yet know Jesus. As we've been talking about faith and contentment, you say, I want that, but I don't know what that is. Let today be your day where you say, I, I want to find out more. I want to walk with Him like they're walking, and I want to be a part of that. I ask you to respond in faith today.